have your Bible with you this evening, I'm going to ask if you'd open to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11, and we're going to begin reading in verse 30. Matthew chapter 11 and verse 30. Sorry, not verse 30, verse 20. My apologies. Uh, Verse 20, we're reading down to verse 30. It says, Then began he to abrade or chastise the cities wherein most of his mighty works were done, because they repented not. Woe unto thee, Chorazin! Woe unto thee, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the day of judgment than for you. And thou, Capernaum, which art exalted unto heaven, shalt be brought down to hell. For if the mighty works which have been done in thee have been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I say unto you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for thee. At that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent and hast revealed them unto babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight, all things are delivered unto me of my Father. And no man knoweth the Son but the Father, neither knoweth any man the Father save the Son, and he to whomsoever the Son will reveal him. Come unto me, all ye that labor, And are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls, for my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. And we trust the Lord will bless the reading of his precious word. Matthew chapter 10 uh, Jesus gathers around him his apostolic team. These men, Judas Iscariot apart, will all lay down their lives uh, for the cause of the gospel. And in that chapter, he shows them that they have, as disciples of his, a very hard road ahead of them. And I'm glad he did that, for the Lord never told us that following him would be easy. He never suggested that the Christian life would be a bed of roses. Uh, He's clear from the very off that believers will often be hated without cause hated by many in this world for no other reason than belonging to the Lord Jesus. Now, listen, if personal popularity is your thing, uh, you know, then the Christian life is not for you. If you're interested in people loving you and appreciating you and, uh, and valuing you uh, as a Christian, uh, I think you're mistaken. And uh, really, you ought to rethink this. The Christian life is not for you if you think that the only thing that matters in this life is that people like you and love you. Following Jesus costs something. And so the Lord goes on to tell his disciples that sometimes our faith will put a strain upon our relationships, particularly those relationships that we value the most. And so he speaks about the strain that is put on a relationship between a father and a son, a mother and a daughter. He talks even about in-laws. And we might feel, well, well, what's it matter if we have a fallout with the in-laws? Well, it matters a great deal because when you marry a person, you marry their family. And, uh, and, and being out of sorts with the people who are related to the person you love 
will put you straight on your own relationship. So I'm telling you now, the Christian life isn't always easy. Sometimes it brings its own problems. Sometimes it brings problems that you would never have had, only for the fact that you are a Christian. And the narrow road is a difficult road. So the Lord concludes that chapter by telling his disciples that the only way they will survive discipleship is if they die to self. And he says, he that taketh not his cross, in verse 38 of chapter 10, and followeth after me is not worthy of me. He that findeth his life shall lose it, and he that loseth his life for my sake shall find it. So when he says, take up the cross, they understood what that meant. They had seen enough people crucified uh, to realize that the Lord Jesus was speaking about death, and a very cruel death uh, at that. And he was saying to them, listen, you know, they servant is not greater than his master. If I'm going to be put to a cross, there's every possibility you're going to be put to a cross. If I'm going to die to self, you also are going to have to die uh, to self. And so then as if to illustrate this truth, in chapter 11, we find that John the Baptist, the forerunner of Christ, has been unjustly in prison. And in prison, he begins to have doubts as to who Jesus is. And I find that interesting because if a man as great as John the Baptist can have questions and doubts, well, then I think I can and you can also. And we find that in our experience as believers. There are times when we enjoy tremendous spiritual highs, but there are all other times when we experience uh, terrible uh, spiritual lows and we enter into times of doubt. Usually when, like John, we find ourselves in some trouble and find ourselves in the midst of some spiritual valley. And here's the thing I, I love about the Lord Jesus. When he hears that John is questioning or doubting his Messiahship, he doesn't crush him. He doesn't come in and and beat him with a big stick. He comes in and he commends him and he speaks well of him. Look at uh, verses 10 and 11 of chapter 11. It says, For this is he of whom it is written, speaking of John, Behold, I sent my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. Verily I say unto you, Among them that are born of women, there hath not risen a greater than John the Baptist, notwithstanding he that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Now sometimes we have this temptation uh, to paint the saints of old in colors of perfection. And uh, you know, the Lord doesn't do that. The Bible doesn't do that. It paints the saints warts and all, with all of their sins, with all of their weaknesses, and we find that they were men who had feet of clay, just as we are. And uh, on occasions, as John did, they wobbled, just as we sometimes wobble in our walk with the Lord. But I thank God for His grace. I thank God that He knew all about me ever before He saved me. He knew all about John ever before He saved John. He knew that John would have doubts. He knew that John would have a problem in prison. He knew that John would begin to uh, begin to crack and, and he began to wobble on his journey. And yet he took him in and he showed grace to him and he ministers to him and he picked him up even as he picks you and I up time and time again. So now the text turns from the saints to the sinners. You see, Jesus uh, and his disciples and indeed John had all been engaged in the same work. They had been pronouncing the kingdom of God as being at hand and they were calling upon those around them to repent of their sin. 
But their preaching had fallen upon deaf ears, even as most gospel preaching today in our province falls upon deaf ears. Well, in verses 20 to 27 of this passage, we read of a great condemnation. Uh, Notice what it says in verse 20 and 21. Then began he to upbraid the cities wherein most of his mighty works were done, because they repented not. Woe unto thee, Chorazim! Woe unto thee, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. He goes on and says, But I, I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the day of judgment than for you. And thy Capernaum, which art exalted unto heaven, shall be brought down to hell. For if the mighty works which have been done in thee had been done in Sodom, it would have been remained until this day. For I say unto you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for thee. Now I want you to notice the reason for this condemnation. It's right there in verse 20. He says it was because they repented not. I want you to get that. You know, you don't hear much of a call to repentance from the churches today. I wish we would hear more preachers calling for repentance. That's what the nation needs. You know, all the preaching, or a lot of preaching today, is about felt needs. Uh, you know, it's about personal wellness. It's about uh, success in material and worldly terms. Many pastors today present themselves as some kind of social worker, as some kind of uh, mental health uh, practitioner. Let me tell you something. A gospel preacher's job is to preach the gospel and to call people to repentance. That's his only job. It's as simple as that. He simply declares Christ and he calls people to rethink and to repent. And that's what John did. That's what his disciples did. That's what the Lord Jesus did. He said, except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. And why is this great that people are led to feel good inside and have a sense of wellness or belonging or or worth? It matters not one bit if you die in your sin and you go to hell. That's why Jesus said, Woe unto thee, Chorazim. Woe unto thee, Bethsaida. The, the people of these cities were in trouble with God, and they needed to rethink the direction their lives were taking. And that's true of every sinner outside of Christ tonight. Friend, if you're here and not saved, or if you're listening online and you're not saved, your soul is perishing. You're in trouble with God. And you need to rethink some things. You need to take stock of some things. You need to take inventory and consider your destiny, where you are going in the end. Now notice what Jesus tells them. He says, if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. You know, Tyre and Sidon were known as particularly wicked cities. We might compare them today uh, perhaps to uh, the city of Bangkok or uh, the city of Las Vegas, some city that's associated with vice or sin, perhaps Amsterdam. Uh, And so Tyre and Sidon were those kinds of cities. The people who lived near or around them would have known them to be places which practiced vice and 
in which every kind of sin was entered into because those were places where largely Gentiles lived, where the people of the population were idolatrous, where they were heathen in their outlook, where they were worldly in their behavior. Tyre and Sidon were in the area of Phoenicia, which is to the west and to the north of Galilee. And because these cities were shipping ports, uh, right on the Mediterranean Sea. Well, those ships coming in brought with them the problems that we see even now in port cities around the world. Very often there was vice associated with the sailors and, uh, and with those who were coming off the ships. In the Old Testament, the king of Tyre is likened to the devil himself in Ezekiel chapter 28. You go back and read that chapter. It starts off talking about the king of Tyre and it ends up talking about the devil himself. So Chorazin and Bethsaida, this other two cities which are contrasted uh, with Tyre and Sidon, well, they were cities close to Capernaum, the home city of Jesus. Uh, and that's where he and his disciples lived. And it's where he performed healing. It's where he cast out demons. It's where he preached the gospel. And Bethsaida was on the east side of, Ga- of Galilee. And uh, Chorazin was on the, uh, little, on the, little on, on the northwest uh, of, uh, of Galilee near Capernaum. So up to this point, the great part of Jesus' ministry has been focused on that particular region and actually has been conducted in those cities. Now, the fact of the matter is that despite the fact that Jesus had come into that place, that he had healed the sick, that he had raised the dead, that he had performed miracles, that he would preached the word there uh, to the people, despite that fact, we find that there was very little results to Jesus' ministry. And that truth in itself is very sobering because the the truth is that we're told here that in God's sight, the cities of Bethsaida and Chorazin, those cities in which Jesus worked and ministered, were deemed in the sight of God as more wicked than the cities of Tyre and Sidon, those pagan, heathen, idolatrous cities. Now let me ask you a question tonight. What does that say about our province? What does that say about Northern Ireland tonight? Northern Ireland is known as the Bible Belt of Europe. You know, we're uh, we're very privileged with respect to gospel preaching. There's more gospel preaching churches in our area in Northern Ireland, uh, you know, per head of population than any other part of the European continent. All over this province tonight, there is literally hundreds of men standing in a pulpit just like this one and proclaiming the truth of the gospel. You could leave this church and literally go five minutes down the road and find another church that is preaching the same gospel that I'm preaching to you uh, tonight. Now, you'll not find that in England and Scotland and Wales. You'll not find that in the Republic of Ireland. You know, I ministered in England, the nearest church to us. You know, you, you would have had to travel a good, a good uh, 20, 25 minutes to get to it before you got to a church similar to our church. And after you left that church, it would be an hour and a half before you met another church like it. And when you get into continental Europe, that gap widens. You go into places like Spain or France or Italy, you know, you'll find very few gospel-preaching churches, and they will be literally many hours apart. We're a tremendously privileged people, and yet for all of our gospel preaching, there's very little impact being made on the society around us. Here's our problem. 
We live in a gospel-hardened society. That's our problem. You know, you look at what's happened with our ladies in Kenya. Our ladies go out, they do a week of ministry with children. 33 children are one to Christ. In one week. We do a week of Bible ministry with children. And if we get one child, we're excited. See the difference? We're in a gospel-hardened society. And so this country, Northern Ireland, is not a country that is particularly knowing, God, knowing God's blessing right now. This is a country that's in trouble with God for the same reasons that Chorazin and Bethsaida were in trouble with God. Now I want you to notice especially what Jesus says in verse 22 to 24. He says it'll be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the day of judgment than for Chorazin and Bethsaida. And he says it will be more tolerable, look at this, for the land of Sodom, of all, of all places, in the day of judgment, than it would be for the city of Capernaum, his home city. Now there are three clear truths here. The first is this, the degree of wickedness of people by which they're judged is proportional to the degree of light they've received. The degree by which people are judged as wicked depends upon the light that they have received. In other words, a person who's not heard the gospel will not be judged as severely as a person who has heard the gospel, who knows the gospel, and who's rejected the gospel. Now this should alarm us. This should concern us. Because you and I have within this congregation friends and family who are well acquainted with the gospel, who've heard the gospel, who grew up with the gospel, and have rejected the gospel. And what Jesus is telling us is this, that when the time of judgment comes, that those friends and family members will be judged more severely than those who never heard or understood the gospel. In the judgment of the wicked, this is the second thought I want you to get a hold of. There will be degrees of eternal punishment and suffering. Notice Jesus uses the phrase, more tolerable. He's not saying it is tolerable. He's not saying that a lost condition and eternity is in any sense comfortable. But he's saying that for some people it will be more tolerable than it will be for others. And the greatest of all judgment, this is our third thought, is reserved for those who have the greatest degree of light. Now let's apply this with a question every one of us ought to ask ourselves as we read this passage. What have I done with the light which I have received into my life? What have I done with the light that I have received? With the gospel messages I've heard? With the tracts I've read? With the street preachers I've walked by? What have I done with the, the gospel as it pertains to me? What I'm telling you is this. If you've heard the gospel over and over, if you've heard the gospel multiple times, but you shrug your shoulders and you put your fingers in your ears and you walk out the door and you're no different going out than when you come in, and so it continues week in and week out, month in and month out, year in and year out, if that's your condition tonight, you're going to wind up in the deepest hell. Now that's what Jesus is saying here. He's saying that it will be more tolerable for the abortionist, for the drag queen, for the pornographer, for the drug dealer perhaps, than it will be for you. 
For those people we look upon and consider them to be in the weakest, the, the deepest and most wicked of sin, and, and perhaps we shake our heads at their activities, now those are the people represented in this account as Tyre and Sidon. But you and I, we're Bethesda and Chorazin. Look in 2 Thessalonians for a moment in chapter 1 and verse 8. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 8. And here we come to a passage that's speaking of the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. When he's coming to separate the sheep from the goats. He's coming to judge the nations in righteousness. He's coming to establish his kingdom. And some who are going to be taken away for judgment. And those who are righteous will be left behind to enjoy life in the millennial age. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse or chapter 1, sorry, and verse 8 says that when the Lord comes, he comes in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he shall come to be glorified in his saints. Now I want you to notice in verse, uh, verse, uh, verse 8 two different groups of people who are judged at the coming of the Lord. First of all, the first group is them that know not God. That's those who have never heard. Those who have never never had a tract given to them. Those who have never sat under a gospel preacher. Uh, those who have never met a street preacher. Those who are in a society or in a community uh, where simply you, don't have, you have very little or no exposure to the gospel. And there are pockets uh, of, of uh, land and, and areas in our, in our land where that's the case. There are places, even in Northern Ireland, where the gospel is rarely preached. Where you have a, a community uh, that is not evangelical and has no evangelical witness uh, within it. That's them that know not God. Or perhaps we're thinking of those in, in far off climes uh, who have never had a missionary come. Have never had anyone bring a Bible to them. Never had anybody to come and explain about their Lord Jesus to them. That's them that know not God. They haven't responded to the light they've been given. They haven't responded to the light of creation. They haven't responded to the light of conscience within. You see, God has given them some light, but they haven't responded to the light they've been given. But there's a second category of people who are in worse trouble than the first. Them that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's those who've been exposed to the truth of Christ, but have rejected it. They're in greater trouble. The second group is worse off than the first group. You see, the first group is guilty of ignorance of God, albeit a reprehensible ignorance. But the second group is identified by a refusal to obey the gospel, to listen to the gospel, to submit to the gospel. And by its refusal to obey, all of the gospel's demands, namely to repent of sin and put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, well, the consequence of that is a, is a heavier, heftier judgment. You see, going to church won't hack it. Being brought up in a Christian home doesn't cut the mustard. Knowing the gospel is enough, isn't enough. Being baptized without the knowledge of Christ will only make you a wet sinner, but ultimately makes you all the more responsible. You see, you need to submit to the truth of the gospel personally and to be saved. 
So there's a great condemnation here. But thankfully, that's not how this passage ends because as we close that passage out in verses 28 to 30, there's a great invitation. Look at it there. Come on to me, the Lord Jesus says, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Now here's one of the great evangelistic passages of the New Testament. Here's Jesus calling out the weary and the heavy laden to come to him and to find rest in him. He's talking to those who are weary, weary with this world, weary with religion, weary with politics, weary with life, those who are tired of it all, who've come to an end of themselves, who are exhausted by the self-help and the human philosophy, who realize that this world is morally corrupt and spiritually bankrupt. He says, if that's you, if you're weary, if you're heavy laden, if you've had enough, if you're sick of it, just come on to me. You come on to me. I'll give you rest. You know, whilst my wife was in Kenya, she asked me to go to a carers meeting for her mother. And, uh, and I went along. I dutifully went along. I'm a good husband. I did what I was told. And I went to this carers meeting. And, uh, you know, it was interesting for those who were, particularly for those who were in full-time care of people with dementia, or other illnesses, and of course, as you know, Hazel's mom uh, suffers in that respect. Thankfully, she doesn't need full-time care at this point, but she is being cared for. And, uh, you know, I went along, and I sat in that meeting, and I listened to see what we could learn. What we, Actually, I, we both thought it was something to, designed to help her mother, but it was actually more designed to help carers. And so I listened and, uh, to see what society had to offer those who are suffering. Here's what we were offered that day. We were offered therapies. They said, you can have a little therapy today. They said, you can have acupuncture in your ears. I thought, great. I come with a burden, and you're going to stick pins in my ears. They said, you can have reflexology. What's that? That's the belief that all your troubles come out your souls. And all your troubles come out your, your feet. And so they go in there and they massage a particular area of your foot that is, pertains to some particular area of your life. You know what this is called? This is called paganism. This is paganism. This is not medicine. This is Eastern religion. They offered yoga. They said to me, do you want to do some yoga? Do I look like a man who does yoga to you? No, thank you. They said, we can give you an Indian head massage. Great, I thought. I come here with a burden. And some big hefty girl's going to put her fingers on my head and massage my head and lift that burden from me. Suddenly I'm going to feel better about the world in which I live. No, I don't think so. 
I don't think that's going to help me. They suggested Reiki. You say, I thought, what in the world is Reiki? Reiki, they put you into a room. They play soothing music. And somebody takes their hands and they run their hands along the contour of your body without actually touching you with the idea that the energy from their hands is ministering to your body somehow. You know what I think that is? That's called witchcraft. And I don't really think that's what people need. You know, as I listened to the therapies that were on offer, I could feel my soul sinking. And I looked around this room and I thought about these poor folks who were weary and heavy laden, who were taking care of elderly and sick and dying relatives who were crying out for some help in their lives. And all they could offer them was Eastern religion. And I thought they need Jesus. That's what these people need. They need Jesus. They don't need somebody poking pins in their ears. They need Jesus. They don't need somebody massaging between their toes. They need Jesus. Those who come to Christ come to him because of a need. And until there's a real need in a person's life, they'll never turn to God. Those who are under the burden of of religion, of trying to keep the law, of trying to live to a particular standard, those who are under the burden of conscience, under the weight of of sin and uh, and of guilt, those people have a need. They should come to Jesus. Those who are burdened by the trials and the tribulations of life should come to Jesus, the sad and the spent, and the sick of it all, and the sinful, and the stressed, and the shamed. He says, come on to me. All ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. I'll give you rest. You know, come is one of his favorite words. Jesus invites us to come, and notice who he says we're to come to. He says, come unto me. It doesn't tell us to come on to a doctrine. That's what the cults do. The cults will say, if you believe this, and if you believe that, and if you believe this, and they don't believe that, well, with, uh, with a, a fair wind and a bit of good behavior, you might make it into the kingdom. No, that's what the cults do. Jesus didn't say, here's a Watchtower magazine, or here's a Book of Mormon, or here's some other field of doctrine that you can go away and study, and that'll bring rest to your soul. He said, come to me. He didn't say come to the ordinances. He didn't say come to the Lord's table. He didn't say come to mass. He didn't say come to baptism. He said come to me. That's what Catholicism teaches. If I'll go to the mass every week and if I'll partake in the elements of the mass, then I may be saved. That's what high church Anglicanism teaches. But that's not what Jesus said. Jesus didn't say, come to an ordinance. He didn't say, come to a ministry. He didn't offer a social gospel. He didn't say, look, if you could go out and feed and clothe the poor, then you'll find rest. He didn't say that. He said, come to me. Come on to me. It's not a case of doing this or not doing that, but simply of coming. I don't have to be baptized. I don't have to be confirmed. I don't have to buy into a list of rules and regulations. I don't have to learn a new vocabulary of religious mumbo-jumbo. I just have to come. It's really as simple as that. Jesus didn't say come to the church. He didn't say that. He didn't say come to a creed. 
He didn't say, you know, if you would, if you would go and learn the Westminster Confession of Faith or the, or the Baptist Confession of Faith or some other confession. No, he didn't say, come to a creed. He said, come to me. He didn't say, come to a clergyman. He didn't say, go to the pastor, go to the priest, go to the rabbi. He didn't say that. He said, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He didn't say, go to a denomination. He didn't say, listen, the best thing you could do is convert to Catholicism, or the best thing you could do is become a Presbyterian, or a Methodist, or a Baptist, or Brethren, or Pentecostal, or something else. He didn't say that. He didn't say, come to a particular denomination. He said, come unto me. All ye that labor and are heavy laden. You see, the invite is to himself, to a vital, dynamic, radical, authentic relationship with the living Lord. Come to him, for he alone is the way, the truth, the life. A few years back, I took an inkling to watch a TV series. I don't often watch TV series. But I got tuned into this one, and it was uh, Hilary Mantle's uh, Wolf Hall, if you're familiar uh, with that particular book or that particular series. And uh, it's the story of King Henry VIII and his uh, inner council, and in particular, the council of a man by the name of Thomas Cromwell. And uh, Thomas, Thomas Cromwell is portrayed in the book uh, and in, in this TV series as a, as a very wise counselor on the one hand, but also manipulative. He's working things out uh, in favor of the Puritans and the Protestant uh, religion. And so, you know, it's, quite, it's a very interesting book, very interesting uh, TV series. But one of the uh, recurring phrases in it is when King Henry uh, wants to have counsel. And he will go and speak with Thomas Cromwell. And of course, all around his, uh, his court is all these listening ears. There are other people listening in. And so he would put his arm around uh, Thomas Cromwell and they would walk down the corridors of Hampton Palace and he would say, walk with me. That was how they started out these conversations. Walk with me. Friends, that's what the Lord Jesus wants to do. He wants you to come and just walk with him. He wants, to, he wants to help you. He wants to lift the burden. He says, follow me. Come on to me. Believe in me. How do we come to Jesus? We come by faith and trust in him. And if we will come, the result is what? Rest. Rest. And for me, that was the frustrating thing about being at this particular meeting because I listened to this lady giving a talk and I have no doubt she was well-intentioned. I have no doubt that she was well-schooled in the particular facilities that were available for people who were burdened. But I looked at it and I thought, listen, it's all very well giving these people an away day to a fancy house in Lorne or, or taking them on a cookery course or doing this or that. But once that day's done, once that activity's over, they're back facing their problems again but Jesus Jesus goes with you all the way he says come on to me all you that labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest you see he's the end of your search he is satisfaction he meets the innermost needs of the soul he says take my yoke upon you what is a yoke you know, a yoke, maybe you folks who are farmers will be more familiar with that than city boys. But, you know, whenever I was reading this, working as a city boy, my first mind went to an egg. And what kind of word is this, yoke? 
But of course, it's got nothing to do with eggs, has it? It's got to do with farming and plowing in particular, in which a strap of wood was put across the necks of two beasts, oxen usually, or donkeys, and then they'd be either pulling a cart or pulling a plow. It's a yoke. It was hard work on the animals. And Jesus says that his yoke, to the contrary, is not something that signifies burden. It's not something that signifies hard work. It's something that signifies rest. His yoke is easy. His yoke is light. How come? Because he's the one who takes the strain. He says, cast thy burden upon the Lord and he shall sustain thee. Casting all our cares upon him because he careth for you. He says, if you come to me, I says, I'll, I'll take the burden. I'll carry the load. I'll give you ease. I'll give you rest. And then he says something else in this passage. Notice he says, come. And then he says, take. And then he says, learn in verse 29. Come on to me. Take my yoke upon you. Learn of me. Do you know what I have learned about Jesus in the 40-some years that I've been a Christian? That he's not even remotely anything like how the world imagines him to be. He's just not how the world sees him. He invites us to be learners, to be his disciples. That's what a Christian is. It's someone who says, I will follow Jesus. It's someone who says, I will be his disciple. I will be one of his learners. Every Christian ought to have a big L written on their back. I'm a learner. Maybe at the close of the service, Mark could get that pen of his out and put an L on our heads as we're leaving. If you weren't here this morning, you missed that joke. We need, you know, we're learners. We're disciples. You know, every Christian is learning. It doesn't matter how long you're saved, you're always learning. You know, I was up in Dunseverick, as you know, a week or two ago, and, and an older brother came to me, a man who was probably 20, 25 years older than I am. And he said this, he says, you know, I learned something new tonight. And then he smiled and he said, you know, no matter how old you are and no matter how long you've been a Christian, there's always something new to learn. And that's true. That's absolutely true. The Christian life is one of learning. It's one of growth. It's not stale religion. It's not a stagnant philosophy. It's vibrant. It's vital. It's real. It's authentic. It's living. It's a loving, everlasting relationship with the King of Kings. And friends, I want to tell you tonight, if you're here and you're not a Christian, there's nothing like it. You've got to get it right. Don't, don't substitute religion for relationship. Don't do that. Listen, I would say that, especially those who are brought up in Christian homes, that's a real danger. You get into the pattern of going to church. You get to know the songs. You get to know the ritual. You get to know the, the vocabulary. You get to know how, they, how to dress and how to act and how to behave. And you do all of that. But you never enter into that real vibrant relationship with Christ. And the sorry thing is that what you've done there is you've, you've, you've lost the relationship and you've, and you've bought into a religion. You can do that even in a Baptist church. Don't make that mistake. Tonight you can come 
to Jesus. Yeah, there'll be up days and down days. There'll be hard days and easier days. Some people will hate you for your decision. Some people will argue with you. Some people will make life difficult for you. I'm just being honest with you. But you know what? The Lord's worth it. The Lord's worth it. Knowing him is worth it. And tonight you can have your burden lifted. The burden of sin and the burden of shame. Tonight you can find rest in a restless world. You can finally make sense of a world that is senseless at times and seems to be without purpose. Jesus makes the difference and he says, come, come on to me. All ye that labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. For I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Do you remember when you were small? You'd be standing up on a wall, or on the, up the stairs a little bit. And your dad would come along, and he would hold out his arms. And what we do, he'd say, jump. Jump, he would say. And when you were a little kid, you thought about that and you sort of weighed it up and you tried to figure out, is he really going to catch me if I jump? You know, here I am, 25 years of age. Is he really going to catch me? Now, you're only about three, four, five, six, seven, eight, something like that. And you're standing there on that wall and you're looking at your dad and he's saying, jump, jump. What are you going to do at that moment? You've got to decide if he is strong enough to catch you and to hold you and to prevent you from hurting yourself. And most children, if not all children, take the leap of faith and they jump out into the space in front of them in the hope that their dad's arms are going to catch them. And that's usually what happens. He usually does catch them. Say usually in case it goes wrong sometimes. But the vast majority of times the father catches the child. You know, tonight the Lord Jesus is standing with arms outstretched. It's almost like we're standing on a wall and we're looking down and he just says, jump. Come on. Come on to me. Jump. Take the chance. Trust me. I'll catch you. I'll save you. Jump. And all you got to do is take that little step of faith. Come on to me. Come on to me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Friend, I wonder tonight, will you come to Jesus? We're going to close by singing.